You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. Walking by faith, not by sight. We may think we know what it means, but I don't think it's that obvious. So what is walking by faith, and how is it different than walking by sight? That's essentially the theme of this chapter. Okay, can you say walking by faith? So here's a recap of the story. Abram returns from his little misadventure from Egypt, and now he's become a super wealthy guy. Remember, he, um, the pharaoh just lavished a lot of good things upon a lot of wealth and things because... You know, he pretended that his wife, Sarah, or Sarai, was his sister. Uh, but apparently his nephew, Lot, had also become a super wealthy man as well. So here they are living in an area in the land of Canaan, but there's one problem. The land was unable to support them. In verse 7, we read that the Canaanites were there and the Perizzites were there as well. In other words, the locals had taken the best part of the land, and so the hilly, kind of rough area, the desolate place was left for Abram and his people. And so this land, which can barely even hold one family, had to support two families, Abrams and Lot's. And so there was tension, not between Abram and Lot, not between uncle and nephew, but between their herdsmen. So Abram, not wanting to escalate the situation, he talks to Lot, and they agree to separate and go in different directions. And, and so in Abram's graciousness, Abram gives Lot his choice. You take the land you want, and I'll just take whatever's left. So Lot, he chooses the fertile plain of Jordan. And Abram was left to live in this hill country of Canaan, and it was there that God renewed his promises to Abram. So that's the story. Everyone say, that's interesting. And it sounds pleasant, right? We got a nice, wonderful uncle, Abram. He's like, you know what? I know it's rough. It's rough. Like you and I, we don't have any beef, but our herdsmen, I get it. There's not enough place to graze their cattle and their, their flocks, so we're going to have to move, separate. But you know what? I love you. So just go find, wh where do you want to go, nephew? You choose. And he's like, well, uncle, I want, I want that area. He's like, go ahead. You got it. I love you. Right? Like, it's good. It sounds pleasant enough. So what could possibly be the problem here? Everyone say it, but there's always a problem. <laughs> Remember the theme of this chapter was walk by faith, not by sight. So here we have a couple truths I'd like to highlight, one negative, okay, and one positive. But first, as illustrated through Lot's experience, here's the negative, as in what not to do. The first point is this, don't trust the eyes of your flesh. Turn to your neighbor and say, don't trust the eyes of your flesh. So we're quite the visual generation, aren't we? Like, we want to see things for ourselves. We, we, don't want, just want, we just don't want to read about it. We want to see it, the event happen on CNN. We don't want to just read the description of the product. We want to see it before we order it. We come to trust our eyes more than anything else. Now, scientifically, we just think eyes are eyes. So when we say we see things, we just think we see things, right? Like, the retina senses the light. The optic nerve takes in that information and translates it. We think that's it, period. There's nothing else to it. So, PD, why are, are you making a big hoopla about this whole seeing? What's the big deal about that? I want to tell you, according to the Bible, our eyes are more than just eyes. 
They are instruments of our sinful flesh. They're instruments of our sinful flesh. Turn to your neighbor and say, don't look at me. (laughs) So let's look at Lot here, okay? On one hand, Lot's decision was pretty much what we'd expect. In fact, it's probably what you and I would have done as well. He was given two options, and there appeared a pretty obvious choice to make. So he figured out which option seemed to be in his best own interest, and he seized the opportunity. Okay, so in all of this, there's no indication whatsoever that what Lot did was intentionally wrong in any way. Because for Lot, he saw fertile land. In other words, he saw prosperous farming. He saw subtropical fertility of the Jordan Valley that he and his family could grow in gener- for generations and generations and to enjoy for generous generations. I mean, there were rivers and there were springs that created oasis. There was a lot of growth of vegetation. There were trees everywhere and luscious fruits. Remember, Lot also was with Abram in Egypt and so he saw how good life could get. And this place, this area, this fertile area, Seemed like a pretty awesome replacement for what he had left in Egypt. So he's thinking, sweet, I got a pretty good deal here. He said, you probably, he was probably think I'd be a fool to miss this opportunity, so thank you, uncle. Thank you for giving me this opportunity for this pretty much assured, certain prosperity. Like, think about it on a personal level. Let's say your boss said, I'm going to give you a raise, your own corner office with windows, I'm giving you the company car and the company credit card. You're going to get promotion, all if you want it. Like Lot, you'd be a fool to miss the opportunity for self-advancement, right? We'd all probably say, that's a no-brainer. I mean, what could possibly be wrong with that? Well, let's look at Lot and see where he went wrong. I got a few things to say about this. First of all, Lot's decision was solely based upon his desire for prosperity. Say, "Uh uh-uh. In verse 10, It said, and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered. Now, this wasn't just him seeing with his eyes, because after all, Abram saw it too, right? No, the way Lot saw that land was different. The way Lot saw that land was with the eyes of his flesh. He saw that it was desirable to make him wealthy. He saw that it would make him more comfortable, less work. He saw that it would give him a more prestigious address, and he wanted what he saw for himself. It wasn't just something he casually saw. It wasn't something that he just casually glanced and saw upon him. No, he wanted it. He lusted after it with the eyes of his flesh. I want that. I want what that has to offer. I want everything about it. Look, we all know that money isn't bad. We all know that. What's bad is the love of money. That's the root of all evil. Money is a necessary part of life. Wealth is not intrinsically bad or good because it's one of the many things in, in the life of a Christian that the Lord owns, but also allows us to use as his stewards. When we properly utilize money, we give glory to God. Amen? But when we love money, when we hoard on to it, when we pursue after wealth and prosperity like Lot did, then money no longer becomes a tool for us to use to help other people, to expand God's kingdom. No, it no longer becomes a tool. It becomes a God. That's what money becomes. We live for it. We think about it before we go to bed. It's the first thing we think about once we wake up. It becomes all-consuming. We lust after it. We fantasize about it. It becomes the center of our lives. That was, that's what was going on in Lot's life right now. He saw that, and it no longer became about, God, what do you want me to do in that land? It became about, I want that for myself. 
I want to expand my empire, my kingdom. Are you dealing with that today? Has money become a means to worship God, or has it become your God? But not only that, Lot's decision failed to honor Abram. Like, we're all about first come, first serve, right? We, we love that. First come, first serve. For the, uh, for, what's it called, Black Fridays, people have people waiting long lines to get that, you know, 50 or 70-inch Samsung TV that's on clearance. It's all about first come, first serve. You're not going to have people who just hold things for you. You got to get it. You know, when I'm at home also, Grace, when she's set the dinner and all the kids are in their place and I'm upstairs, and Ada, with her little belly rumbling, she reaches for some food because she's hungry, Grace will always say, not yet. Let Daddy come down and sit with us first. Right? And that's how it was for me for growing up too. No one ever touched the food until dad came back from work. Okay? Similarly, Lot, he failed to honor Abram because he thought he was first. But that wasn't true because Abram was first. <clears throat> because Abram was the one who was called by God. Abram was the one who was promised by God the land. Abram was the one who responded in faith. And so Abram had every right to pull rank on Lot. He was, after all, Lot's uncle, his elder. Lot owed Abram honor. Lot owed Abram respect. And yet it seemed like Lot didn't even think twice about it. He didn't say, uncle, you know what? You gave me all this. Like God, granted, God gave it to us. But you gave it to me too. You deserve, you pick first. You are Abram, the, the soon-to-be father of all nations. You can imagine that Abram shared the vision that God gave him to his family. You will be the father of all nations. And I'm just a subordinate. I thank you that I can be a part of your family to have to carry your name. You take it first. But that wasn't on his thought. That wasn't his mind. Because for, for Lot, it, was about, it wasn't about what was right. It was about what was right for him, what he wanted. I don't know, maybe you're having a hard time respecting someone. Maybe it's your boss, your colleague, your coworker, your mom, or your dad. You know, when people ask me how someone can um, love and honor someone who is unlovable or is not worthy of honor, I tell them, God never owed us anything either. God never owed us love, but he gave us everything. I remember Grace telling me one time in the military uh, when she served in the Navy that you'll have senior officers who aren't exactly popular, right? In fact, they're quite hated by some of their subordinates. But regardless of how that person may be, the saying goes, you must respect the rank, not the person. Lot forgot about who Abram was to him. Instead, he selfishly took what he thought he was owed. He took what he lusted after. He took without even considering Abram's position. Lastly, Lot's decision was faulty because it ignored the moral issues. Now, there's a pretty telling part here in verse 10. Lot saw that the valley was like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. Okay, so hang with me here, folks. The garden of Eden was nothing like Egypt. Nothing like Egypt. This comparison Lot made only indicated how completely off Lot was in terms of knowing things about God, in terms of knowing God's perfect paradise and the work of fallen humanity. How could you even compare the two? But not only that, look at verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So Sodom already had a reputation for its wickedness, and yet we read in verse 12 that Lot, he pitched his tents near Sodom. So Lot, 
He saw a quicker way to scale the wall of prosperity. He lusted after this newfound opportunity for wealth and comfort and success. But he also failed to honor Abram by taking the fertile land, thinking that he deserved it when it was, in fact, Abram who deserved it more. But finally, Lot totally ignored all the moral implications, too. He made a false comparison of God's perfect uh, garden with Egypt. Egypt, which was a land riddled with paganism, which goes to show how we're quick to compromise the things of God. But Lot also moved closer towards sin rather than further away from it. All because he saw with with his eyes of flesh. All because he saw with his eyes of flesh. You see, this wasn't just about, oh, wow, a promotion. I can get more money. I can provide a better life for my family. No. It may have started off that way, but soon it became all about what he wanted more than what God wanted. Folks, hear me out. I'm going to say it slow. Good, the good things in life aren't always God things. You get that? Just because it may seem like a good thing in life may not necessarily mean it is a God thing. I remember having a conversation with a brother not too long ago. He got a job, and he was looking for a job. He was working part-time before, but he, he got a job that would pay him twice as much. It was a pretty good job, too. Twice as much as he was earning before. And he's been looking. He's been praying. He's been searching for a new job. The only catch was this. It would take him away from Sunday service, not just once a month, not just twice a month, but every single Sunday. Every single Sunday. And so he talked with me. And I talked with him, and I tried to dissuade him from taking it. And I said, trust in God that he'll give you something else. You just have to trust in him. And this is what he said. He said, Pastor David, this is an opportunity I just can't pass up. This is an opportunity I just can't pass up. Let me tell you folks here, how many times will something like that happen in our lives? I'll tell you how many times. These moments and opportunities, whether good or bad, in your personal or professional life will happen all the time. All the time. Why? Because Satan will do everything he can to put a bump in your step so to disengage you from your lifeline. He will do everything he can to isolate you. He will do everything he can to remove accountability from you. He will do everything he can to force you to simply rest in your faith alone and your know-hows. He will use a person, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, a wife, a mom or dad, a sister, a brother, or a work opportunity for you students. It could be the rigors of schoolwork just to say that it is more important than God, that this is more important than honoring Christ, or this is more important than being a part of the church body. And that's what Lot did here. He began to compromise because he saw with his eyes of flesh rather than what God was saying. Everyone else in the world was saying, this is worth it. You have to succeed. You have to accomplish. You have to work for it. God is saying, that's, the, that's your eyes of flesh. Don't be tempted. Don't be swayed. Trust me. Do you trust that I am your God? Do you trust I will provide for you? Do you trust I will help you navigate through your life? Don't flirt with sin. Every big sin of our lives all stem from a seemingly small sin that we've allowed to enter into our lives. Because what happens is that this toying with the whole flesh of the eyes can radically turn from bad to worse. And we get that in verse 14. No longer is Lot living near Sodom, but now, get this, he's living in Sodom. And get this, it's not, it was not in our scripture today, 
when chapter 19, verse 1, it said that Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. Do you know what that means? This means, it's another way of saying, he served on the city council of Sodom. Lot, the one whom God said, stay away from wickedness. You are my chosen people. Not only did he flirt with sin, not only did he move inches closer to sin, he totally just encapsulated himself in sin. This wickedness, this place, these people known having this reputation for complete disregard for God, complete reputation for wickedness. Lot was very much deep into this new life, a life of total abandonment of God. And as much as he tried to build his life up, we'll soon read of how he had lost everything. He lost his wealth. Lot lost his wife. He would lose his daughter's son, husbands. He wasn't even able to influence even one person to follow the Lord, not even his own family. So brothers and sisters, friends, I say to you, the Lord says to you, don't trust your eyes. It can deceive you. Instead, trust in the word of God. Trust in the word of God. He will help you navigate your life. Our eyes have led to many great fallen people. Our eyes have led to many evils. Our eyes have led us to a lot of brokenness, has it not? Our eyes have led us to a lot of unfaithfulness, has it not? Our eyes have deceived us and led us to a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. So why do we keep trusting after our eyes? Thinking that that's right. Thinking that's the best way when it is not. When the whole time God is frantically waving his arms saying, it is not the right way. It is not the right time. It has not the right person. There is no one person in this room who is immune to the powerful influences of the eyes. Materialism, wealth, sexual promiscuity, idolatry, greed. They all seize you through the sinful flesh of the eyes as we longingly gaze towards these things we believe are good. It all starts with the little things as we lust through magazines that are carefully designed to sell alluring products. Or as we drool over product websites thinking as if buying that somehow or buying this car or buying that house or buying this designer clothing will somehow satisfy our souls. We covet our we covet through a walking through the shopping mall. We may even envy the wicked and how they prosper. Have you guys ever thought about that? These people who don't know God, who actually hate God, and yet they're doing so much better in life than we are? You see, what we see, what we want, what we demand, all these things, we're willing to sell our souls for a whole lot less in a fertile plain. The world lives by sight. That is the world. That is how they live. They live by sight. But as Christ followers, we are called to live by faith. Don't trust your eyes. Trust in the Word of God. Amen? My second truth, my last truth, leads us to the opposite direction. The meek will inherit the earth. Can you say the meek? Have you guys ever wondered what that meant? Right? We always say, you've heard that before. Meekness. So the world seems to ridicule the statement because for them it's just not simply true. The meek will inherit the earth? Come on, are you kidding me? Why? Because the world, it goes by, the race goes to the swift. It's the survival of the fittest. The battle belongs to the strong. Nice guys finish last. Oh, right? Right, they're left in the dust. Meekness to many in the world may seem like someone who's weak, 
someone who can't stand up and voice their opinions, is someone who goes with the flow, is someone who doesn't stand out, is someone who's effeminate. No one wants to be considered meek. Kings don't want meekness on their titles. They don't want King Henry the meek, right? That's the modern translation of meekness. But that's not the biblical definition of meekness. Meekness is not some resignation to fate or some passive and reluctant submission to events. Meekness is patience and it is hopefulness, endurance of the strong. The Greek word for meek is the word for tame. Do you know that? Tamed animals, though they are tame, have not lost their strength, but only have learned to control their destructive instincts. We see Abram as a meek man. We know what man can do. Man can build Tower of Babel, defying God. Man could listen to the serpent to bring sin into the world. We know what man can do with this destructive instinct, with this destructive sin nature. The meek is someone who says, Lord, I submit to you. I want to let you control my life. That is a true test of strength. He walked by faith, not by sight. Remember after Abram's big moral failure in Egypt, where do we find him? He's worshiping. How many times have you guys, in a moment of failure, began to worship? I've had friends who are breaking up with their girlfriends, who would maybe who got fired. The first place they go is where? To a bar. Why? Because for them, they see hope at the end of a bottle. They just want to forget about everything. They just want to get numb. I'm not saying that you are either, but how many times in your failures, in the moments where you felt rejected, moments where you felt humiliated or embarrassed, were you found here worshiping God? That's what Abram did. I mean, think about it. Wise, how ticked off would you be if your husband said, hey, you're going to be my sister so that I can save my neck? Right? He, was, he failed so many times. Where do we find him afterwards? He was worshiping, and he was calling upon the name of the Lord, saying, God, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Give me strength. Empower me. See, when the quarreling started between him and, his, and, and Lot's herdsmen, it was Abram who took the initiative to resolve it. He didn't want to argue. He looked for a way of peace. And how did he plan for peace? It was at his own expense. Instead of lording it over Lot, he gives Lot the choice of the land. Abraham was a man of many faults, yes, but he was still a man who walked more by faith than by sight. Abram was willing to surrender himself, his possessions, and his future comfort all into the Lord's hands. How? Because when someone is fixed, get this, when someone is fixed on the promises of heavenly inheritance, they afford to give up earthly desires. When you know What's coming for you? When you know that eternity is with you, when you know that you will be in the presence of the living God, everything else on earth, it does not mean anything to you anymore. The desires for the American dream, the ambition to be successful and to have your walls plated with diplomas, all that stuff just to say, look at me, look what I've done. But when you see all that Christ has done, it means nothing. 
So in verse 14, after Lot leaves the Lord, he renews his promises to Abram. Lift up your eyes and look. Abram's looking, but not with the lustful eyes of the flesh, but with the trusting eyes of faith. And God says, all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Look, Abram didn't have it all yet. When God made these promises, he didn't genie it and say, now you got it. In fact, he never owned any land except for a burial plot for his wife. But in verse 17, God tells him to walk through the length and the breadth of the land, to walk in faith, trusting in the Lord, and to enjoy, get this, enjoy the certainty of God's promises. Are you enjoying the certainty of God's promises in your life today? That even when life is hard, that you know that God's promises are with you and they never falter and God is a promise keeper. And what are these promises, people? One day, there will be a city that has a foundation, that has walls and buildings that were built by the great architect and builder, God. All the people who live by faith, we may not get anything in this life. You may not get all these dreams and ambitions and the American dream. Your life may literally just be a blip in the radar. And maybe when we see people's lives here, our fellow brothers and sisters, and the way that they live, it's just, it was just so quick, so fleeting. And to us, in our eyes, it doesn't make any sense. But they and all others who live by faith saw from a distance what they would truly inherit. They would inherit the city of God. You. Those of you who follow Christ have been given the city of God. You, those of you who call yourselves followers of Christ, have been given a new heaven and a new earth. Why would you settle for an old one? So therefore, it is worth letting go of every earthly thing. Every earthly thing. You see, those who are meek, those who are humble, those who let go and let God, those who walk by faith and not by sight, they inherit the earth. This is the promise of God. But as faithful as Abram was, we know that he was also a man of many failings too. And if we get tempted to rest in the notion that since Abram did it well, that we can also do it well too, that being moral or thinking that we're, we can be good enough to enter into God's presence, it will only lead to self-righteousness and it will only lead to pride in that I did it. It was me, God. It was by my strength. It was by my will. It was by my volition. It was by my opportunities that I created. See, this is the opposite of meekness and humility. No. We can look towards Abraham. We can look towards him Towards as a source of inspiration, but we can, but we must look upon Abram's greatest son Jesus as our only source of salvation. In the book of Matthew, he goes to great lengths to show that Christ is the descendant from Abram. Because remember, on another hilltop in the land of Canaan, Jesus was shown all the kingdoms of the world in all their splendor. All this, Jesus, I will give to you. If only you will bow and worship me, said the temper, tempter. I mean, that's a pretty sweet deal, isn't it? Inherit the whole earth. You have all the kingdoms. And not only that, Jesus, you can avoid the painful cross. All just for a little bowing of the knee. 
But praise be to God, the meek one was not a weak one. Away from me, Satan, he said. This is our hope of salvation. Not that you could possibly be meek enough to gain God's favor, but that Jesus has meekly submitted himself even to the cross in your place. And God, approving of his son, raised him from the dead. Hallelujah. Jesus will inevitably inherit the whole earth. Remember, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And those who in faith trusted in him for that day, even when it seemed impossible, even when it seemed like it wouldn't make any sense, even when your family members and your co-workers and your friends are saying, why are, why are you Christian? Why are you placing your faith in him? Even when it causes a disadvantage into your professional or even personal life, it is through Christ we will inherit this new heaven and new earth. You see, Genesis, Abram, and all these stories point you to Christ. So what is the word for the Lord, word of the Lord for us today? He says to you all, including me, to stop trusting how things look through the eyes of our flesh. This means get your eyes off of your wealth, your advantage, your rights, thinking that it's what you need most in life when, it's typically, when it typically leads to spiritual compromise and destruction. But also, we need to know that it's the meek who will inherit the earth, not the strong, not the prideful, not the self-righteous, not the self-sure, but the, but the meek and the humble. So he says, therefore, be humble. Surrender yourself to Christ. This is the gospel, that Jesus surrendered himself to the cross for you and I. So therefore, we now know that this gospel is now the way in which we are to live for Christ. Because Christ did it. And he says, walk by faith, not by sight. Amen? Let's pray. Many often say that the Christian life is a radical life and that it seems so opposite from what we are accustomed to in the way that we have lived and the way, things that we have been taught. The world says that if you want something, you must fight for it. You must earn it. But the gospel says we can't fight for it. We can't earn it. So surrender. Give up everything. Maybe right now we're struggling with what Lot was struggling with, the whole lust of the flesh of our eyes. Maybe right now we've honed in on a particular thing, a job or a clothing or a car or a home or something, Lord, that is just taking our attention and our affection away from you. And we think that maybe it started off as a, as a simple thing, just I want a better life for me or for my family. I want this because, you know, I, I need this for work or for my life. But how often, Lord, something as simple and benign as a good thing can turn into such a, an ungodly thing? I suppose the simple question we need to ask ourselves is, God, are you still on your throne in my heart today? Are you still the Lord of my life? Not just the Savior. We're gl we'll, we're, we'll gladly accept our ticket of salvation through the sacrifice, death, and work, and life, and resurrection of Christ. We'll gladly accept you, Jesus, as my Savior. But will we accept you as Lord of my life? Will we humble ourselves and be meek and submit ourselves to your will and to your ways? 
Maybe that's what we're struggling with. Maybe we keep thinking that what the world offers is better than what you offer. And if so, we've been duped. We've been blinded by the lies and deceit of the enemy. And if that's the case, Lord, open our eyes to see the truth. That God, you are not just better, but you are the best. There's nothing more, there's nothing greater, there's nothing higher than you. That you turn our hearts and our spirits to no longer want to be settled for the things that are old, like this world and the things that this world has to offer, but that we would look towards you, the one who will give us the new city and the new heaven and the new earth. Where is our faith in right now? What is our faith in? Friends, church, I want us to take a moment now and simply pray a prayer where we confess, not just whatever sins you feel like confessing, but confessing any uncertainty that you may have. Maybe you have doubt. Even as a Christian, maybe you doubt right now God's goodness. Maybe you truly doubt if, doubt of his provision or if, if he will be there for you. And so you feel like you have to make things right. You have to fix it. Whatever it is, the word of the Lord says for us to humble ourselves and to be meek and submit ourselves before him. Okay, let's take a moment and pray now.